So today's message is called Standing Your Ground. We're going to be in Ephesians 6 again, starting in verse 13. When I was growing up in Kenosha, and the neighborhood we were living in was actually on the western part of Kenosha at that time, so it wasn't that developed quite yet, and we had a field that separated us from the next subdivision over to our west. And when I was growing up, it was kind of a, a dividing line between the kids on my block and those dastardly kids across the field. They were the enemy. They were evil. We didn't like them. We had wars all the time. We'd grab crab apples and throw them at each other in the field, and we'd be maneuvering left and right. And when the crab apples ran out, we'd throw dirt clods, and in the winter, we'd do snowballs. And we'd just have wars going back across the field. And even sometimes at night, we'd ambush them. We'd go kind of sneaking across the field in the tall grass and pop up in one of their backyards with some crab apples and throw them at them. And they'd get mad and start chasing us across the field. And we'd have half our people laying in wait. As soon as we ran past them, they'd jump up and, and pelt them again with crab apples. And it was a good time. I think every kid needs to have a field nearby their house to play in when they're growing up. Fortunately, you guys up here, you have all kinds of wilderness out here. But in the city... Fields and green grass are kind of hard to come by. During that time in my life, I learned to love action movies, kind of like what we saw in our opening videos here, especially ones that dealt with the military. You know, growing up as a, as a, as a boy, I'd see myself in the hero's position, this strong, silent type that would deal death to the enemies of his country. You know, people like Rambo or Arnold Schwarzenegger were my heroes, and I dreamed someday of becoming a special warfare soldier like them and being able to handle any situation I was tossed into. What I didn't realize about the military in general, and special forces in particular, is it isn't really about how tough you are to get into those. Although that's huge if you're going to be a success there. You do have to be kind of a tough guy or a tough girl. They're letting females in the rangers now, so I have to say tough women also. It isn't about how fast you can run or how many push-ups you can do, although being physically fit certainly helps to be able to, to qualify for that. It isn't even about how fearless you are or how brave you act in front of everybody. What matters most in the military, and in God's military in particular, is character. Character to stand firm against what seems to be overwhelming odds. And character is developed through discipline. It's the first thing the military teaches you when you enter basic training. I remember getting off the bus. It was getting into the evening. Just got done flying over the place across the country, various hubs and everything. And you get off, and there's drill sergeants screaming. There's a, a bunch of teenage boys and girls running over the place. They're scared, and, and they don't know what to do. One drill sergeant's yelling this. One drill sergeant's yelling that. Some are even already crying because they're just under so much stress all the time. And then the drill sergeants just said, everybody, be quiet, be quiet. The senior drill instructor is going to speak. Drill Sergeant Monk came up, and everything just went quiet. And in his very low, deep, baritone voice, he told us what we're going to be expecting in the next 14 weeks. He said, you're going to be going through hardship. You're going to be going through sleeplessness. You're going to be going through physical pain. We will put you in physical pain. You will have mindless repetition in training. And as he finished his opening speech, as we're now, if we weren't scared before, now we're really scared. As he finished his speech, he actually asked us, do you have any questions? Of course, there's always one guy in the crowd, the smart aleck, 
and not-so-smart recruit that raised his hand and actually asked something. And he asked in this very kind of smart-alecky tone and condescending tone, he goes, so when do I get to shoot the machine guns? Drill Sergeant Monk just did this really slow walk over to him, and he probably stood at least 6'5". He's just a gigantic guy. He just looked down at this guy until the guy started almost crying, and he said, when you become a soldier, you get to play with the guns. Not until. You need to prove to me you can handle that before you get your hands on them. And over the next four weeks, we learn how to become a soldier. 12 to 16 hours a day of doing nothing but that. Learning to wear our uniform according to regulations and, and having pride in it. Learning to stand at attention, stand at parade rest, stand at ease, fall in, fall out, left face, right face, about face, saluting, learning the proper greetings for NCOs and officers. We practice marching, forward, halting, mark time, counter column, skip step, singing cadence, all those different things that go into being a soldier. We learn to get up early to make sure that your rack was made correctly and you had your locker squared away. We learn that how to impress our drill sergeant. Our platoon leader, who is one of the recruits with us, who's um, selected because he, was, he showed um, some leadership characteristics, would get us up early, get the squad leaders up early, and we would go and, and get our people up early. And the drill sergeant would walk in with a garbage can, ready to throw it down the middle of the bay to wake us up, and we'd all be standing there at parade rest. Our beds were made, we'd be all ready to go to PT, and he'd just walk in and, and look, wow. <laughs> You guys are up already? And he said, and I remember at the end of it, Drill Sergeant Monk said, that's when I understood you guys were ready to be soldiers, when you guys developed that kind of self-discipline. This is the imagery that is used by the Apostle Paul, that of being a soldier in the scripture that we we're about to read. And keep in mind that Paul wrote Ephesians chained, literally chained to a Roman soldier. And it's that image he is trying to convey here. A soldier that is ready for battle and ready to fight. A soldier that has learned the discipline and received the training that he or she needs to stand firm in the face of, en of the enemy and to overcome in battle. Today we're going to cover the parts of the army that are more defensive in nature. Those parts of the armor that enable us to stand against the attacks of the enemy. And next week we'll cover more of the offensive side of the armor of God. So let's look here in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 13. Paul says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you might be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, which with you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the imagery that it brings to us, this idea of discipline, this idea of being a soldier in your army. And most of all, the truth and the reality that we are in a war. We're in a war that doesn't have any clear battle fronts. It doesn't seem to be around us. But in the invisible, in the spiritual realm, it is raging and raging fiercely about us. Help us to, to develop a newfound sense of appreciation for that. 
and see ourselves for who we really are, soldiers in the army of God here on earth. Father, I ask that you do this this morning in your name. Amen. Paul tells us that our first and primary lesson in spiritual warfare is learning how to stand. I remember when I was involved in martial arts. I was kind of like that kid in basic training. You go to your, your first day of martial arts training and they, they teach you how to, to wear the gi, which is the uniform. They teach you how to tie the belt. You get a white belt right away and, and you're sitting there and you're, you're waiting for class to begin and you're all nervous and, and everything. And you're like, okay, I want to learn how to do that jump up, spin around in the air and kick somebody. And right after that, I want to learn how to break a brick with my head. I want to learn this stuff. Come on, show me, show me, show me. Well, the instructors, they didn't really start with the jumping spin kick. They didn't have us go and start breaking bricks with our heads and our hands. They taught us how to stand. They taught us the different stances in the martial arts. Horse stance, forward stance, all these different stances because we need to learn how to work on our balance and know how to stand when we're in combat. And learning how to stand properly was crucial for us to maximize our speed and our forces with our punches and kicks so someday maybe we would be able to break things with our hands and our head. The kingdom of God is kind of the same way. Before we learn how to attack, we need to learn how to stand. It has to do with what we learn about the kingdom of God and how it works in our lives. Paul gives us a couple of exhortations on this subject. In 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, he says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings that we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Paul again echoes this in all three of the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, when he said that you should guard what has been entrusted to your care. Talking about the teaching of the church. Guard it with the strength of the Holy Spirit who lives so powerfully within you. The chaos that we're going through right now in our society is nothing new. Paul experienced the exact same thing in his time. A large portion of all of his letters to the church was to combat bad teaching that was sneaking in and leading people toward a false idea of faith. And that's why Paul emphasizes over and over and over again that correct doctrine is the thing that enables us to stand firm in the against the attacks of our enemies. And as soon as Christianity started taking hold and people began to follow the teachings of Jesus, all kinds of error started to slip in. You have to remember that most of the people of that time were very, or rather uneducated Jewish people or the Romans and Greeks without any foundation in the Old Testament that the early apostles could point them back to. They had no idea what it said. And this lack of knowledge caused people to misinterpret the teachings of Jesus and twist them to kind of meet their own needs and desires. You remember that most of the problems in the Old Testament, if you go through Kings, you go through Chronicles, if you go through the book of Judges, the different historical teachings of the Old Testament, most of the problems they ran into had to do with wrong teaching, had to do with bad doctrine, had to do with, with taking the doctrine of Baal or a doctrine of some other god that, of a nation around them and trying, to, and trying to mix it in with the pure worship of God. 
After a generation or two, they would incorporate those other beliefs into the faith that had been given to them. And within a generation, the faith that their parents and grandparents knew was unrecognizable in comparison. Many of us who have been saved you know, more than 20 years, 20, 30 years, we see that today, don't we? We see, two, we see, see right now two main camps within the church. We see the hyper-grace side, the, the side that says, you accept Jesus as Lord and you have a fire insurance policy, in a, in a sense. He'll save you from hell, but after that you can pretty much live however you want. And you want to um, find some interesting things on the web? You know, look up hyper-grace and some of the teachings that you find. I found a, a channel that was for Christian gay people. And it was taking the the teachings of the Bible that are very implicit about homosexuality, that it is fornication. It's simple fornication because they can't marry. There is no biblical um, process, there's no biblical truth, no biblical teaching that says two males or two females can marry each other. It's, uh, Jesus himself said emphatically, marriage is between one man and one woman for life, period. So there's no teaching to allow them to be able to do that, so it's simply fornication. And you can see that they give these long, convoluted, proof-texting answers that, that um, try to prove that wrong. There's also a, a site for Christian swingers. This is for people that are married but go in and have unlawful relationships with other married people. There's um, things in there about uh, Christian polygamy and polyandry or communal families that we're all just going to live together, we're all just going to say we're all married together, and we'll all be all one big family. There are Christians out there who say, well, we should go to nightclubs and strip clubs and evangelize people. We should go there and drink and, and have fun with them and, and, and be part of that crowd so that we can bring as many people into the gospel as we can. There's another, that's all about taking grace to an extreme. And it's ignoring the warnings of Scripture that warn us about living this way. And you always see that the justification behind any of these, it just made my head hurt as I'd watch the, some of these videos. And no, they weren't bad, bad videos, but you know, the, the people trying to explain themselves in the proof texting they were using. If you don't know what proof texting is, it means like taking one small scripture out of context and using it to justify bad behavior. Well, David had many wives, and he was blessed by God and called a man after God's own heart. Well, yeah, I could take that out of the Bible and use that to justify that too, but if I ignore the fact that David's whole family was destroyed because of that, then you know, I could use it to justify my behavior as long as I ignore the rest of the Bible and take it out of context. That's what a proof text is. There's another side, though, of this theological coin that leads people into error, and that is hyper-law or legalism. You accept Jesus, but you also have to follow every single law in the Bible. And a few more will probably add to it and be saved. My daughter Haley got involved in something this week. There was this um, person out at Parkside College in Kenosha who was holding up signs and with a Bible in his hand, and I guess, and he was telling all the women that were going to class that they are responsible for the sexual assault on campus because if they would dress the way the Bible told them to dress, they wouldn't be getting raped and sexually assaulted and all that kind of stuff. And he was trying to use the Bible to justify that. And she went out as a counter-protest against him, my kid. Um, and 
you saw what happened. I mean, it did nothing to promote Christianity. It did quite the, same, quite the opposite. People were out there bashing this person. People were out there, you know, calling him ignorant and all this kind of stuff. And it, and it, and it didn't put Christianity in a good light. Last week, we talked about the Westboro Baptists. They're another example of that hyper-law and legalism. And all this is why Paul tells us that before you think about taking upon yourself God's armor, we should check ourselves. Remember that this armor is God's armor. God's armor only works if we're standing in the true faith. James said this about spiritual warfare. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. In other words, stand in truth. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James tells us to stand firm during the attacks of the enemy. And the pieces of the armor that we will study today will help us do just that. And before we get into those weapons, I want, we're going to see how we stand our ground today by having the, these pieces of the armor on. And the first piece of the armor I want to look at today is the belt of truth. The Bible says to stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. A few weeks ago I said in a message at, um, on these kind of subjects that your actions reflect your belief system, don't they? That explains why there's so much onslaught against truth and what is error. Even the first attack upon humanity began with a statement questioning God's word by saying, did God really say? In Isaiah 59, I encourage you to read that on your own. Mark that on your, in your Bibles. It really outlines what happens when a society questions what is true. You can see what's happening to Israel 2,600 years ago is happening right now in America. And there's a couple of verses I'd like to highlight from Isaiah 59 that will bring to attention and describe how truth was viewed during that time or even the idea of truth. Isaiah 59.14 says, So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty can't enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. That's a pretty powerful statement that whoever shuns evil, whoever wants to turn away from evil, becomes as a prey, like an animal to be hunted. And when a society rejects truth for an extended period of time, even the mention of what is true will make you an enemy to some of these people. A great example of this is found in Romans Chapter 1, at the end of the chapter, you see that slow side into the rejection of God's truth and what happens to the culture when you do that. Let me give you an example. Let's pretend right now it's July 4th here in Whitehall. After church, we're going to go watch the 4th of July parade. Now, if we stood on a corner of Dewey and Maine during the 4th of July parade with a box that we could jump up on with a megaphone and declared, according to the Bible, premarital sex and homosexuality is sin, what do you think the response of many people would be? We'd be getting yelled at, wouldn't we? Go back 10 or 15, even 20 years ago, what do you think the response would have been? Probably, even, probably an amen. But what would it be now? You're nothing but a hateful, homophobic scum and you should be locked up for being such a hateful person. That would be the result of our society today. 
But that's what happens when we don't stand our ground. That's what compromise does not only to individual, but whole societies and cultures. Action always follows belief. And those beliefs are formed from what you believe is true. And that's why truth is described as Paul as a belt that holds in place righteousness. Because without that belt, your righteousness is going to be loose. It's going to be floppy. It's just going to be going everywhere. And it's going to be unable to protect your heart against the attacks of the evil one. And that's why Jesus said, He is the truth. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, He binds that truth around our waist and holds our righteousness in place. That's the importance of truth that it's closely tied with our ability to be righteous before God. So let's look at the breastplate of righteousness. I want to be clear there. Just as I stated a moment ago, our righteousness, righteousness means right standing, makes you are in good graces with God. Our righteousness before God is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Period. That's the reality of that empty cross that all of God's wrath against us was poured out in His Son Jesus, so that the wrath never has to touch us or destroy us. That's the good news. That's the gospel that we believe in. And that's a truth that sets us free from the law of sin and death. So the obvious question comes, well, if Jesus did it all, then why do I have to strive to live a holy life? Why do I have to follow what this book says other than Jesus died for me? I want you to think of the word picture that Paul is describing here when he talks about a breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of a Roman soldier was like the bullet and puncture-resistant vest that most modern police officers now wear. It's meant to stop or blunt the effects of blades and projectiles. So when we willfully sin as a Christian, when we, we live a sloppy life, it's like you're taking that that, that vest you're wearing and just unzipping it right here and pulling out one of the plates. It makes the vest useless at that point. You give the, the enemy free reign to harm and harass your life. You also forfeit the blessings of God because you're like a city with broken walls. You're free to be attacked at any time. And instead of being an asset to the kingdom of God, you then become a liability to it. Again, that's why the belt of truth holds that breastplate of righteousness in place. And I can't emphasize it enough. Your beliefs drive your actions. So if your belt of truth isn't correct, it affects your righteousness and your potential to be used by God for the glory of the kingdom. And if you're not being used for the glory of the kingdom, you're being used by the enemy to bring shame to the kingdom. And yes, it's that black and white. You're going to be used for one or the other. And which one is your decision? So is your day-to-day -day righteousness protecting your heart? Is your belt of truth holding it in place? That's something that you, you have to do business with God this morning about. Let Him refashion these two critical pieces of your armor back into place. A few moments ago I mentioned balance as being key to learning how to fight particularly in the martial arts. It's a good way to introduce the next part of our armor, which is our feet fitted with the gospel, being our footwear of the armor of God. And there are two truths that the Bible is showing us with this part of the armor, with the footwear of the gospel. 
Number one, your footwear cover and protect your feet. And they're a reflection of our right action. Think about this for a moment. Your feet go where your heart and mind lead it, don't they? Unless you have some weird sleep disorder, you never really look up and say in the morning, wow, how did I get here? Right? You made a conscious decision for your feet to carry you to where you're currently standing, or in our case this morning, sitting in church. And that was a great decision you made this morning to come to church, by the way. I just want to compliment you on that. Good decision. We've established that if your belt of truth is in fashion correctly in right belief and your breastplate of righteousness is loose and flapping, it allows the enemy free access to your heart and allows the wrong thoughts and feelings to lead you to places you should never go. And every part of the armor that helps you stand firm is dependent upon these other parts. And that's why the Bible tells us, take up the whole armor of God. And this is why God issues us special footwear. Today's military even reflects the same principles used by Romans 2,000 years ago. When I was in the army, under my bunk, there were several different kinds of footwear that we had to have exactly right and in order. From left to right, if you were looking under my bunk, there would be my parade boots. These were the ones that were spit shine for inspection. They, they looked great. Most of us would take them off base and get them, it was called caramelized, where they would have a permanent shine on them. You only put these things on for inspection. The only thing you would ever have to do with these things is just wipe it off with some cotton, and they would shine no matter what. These are the ones you use for inspection. Next to that was our everyday boots. They were brush shine, they were clean. They're the ones you used every day. Next to those was our dress shoes for our Class A uniform, also spit-shined, also only worn for inspection. Next, one, next to those were our tennis shoes, used for PT and running in the morning. The next ones were our shower shoes, which are usually flip-flops to walk on, so you weren't walking on the bare floor and catching everybody else's funky junk on their feet. Now, question. Do I pull out my dress shoes to go running in the rain? Do I pull out my everyday boots when the battalion commander shows up for inspection? Not unless I like peeling potatoes. Do I put on jungle boots for Arctic conditions? No, they have no traction on snow and ice and your feet will literally freeze right off your body. That's gonna make you very combat ineffective if you don't have feet to stand on. Each style of boot was meant to help you stand and thrive and survive in a different scenario. And this is why we need to wear the footwear God gave us, the gospel. It's to be the overriding focus of our lives so that not, we can not only survive this war we're in, but we can thrive and we can defeat our enemy. And the reason that so many Christians live defeated lives that they struggle so much and we keep falling into sin is that you're wearing the wrong footwear. As a Christian, your ability to stand is completely dependent upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of this book. That's the source of your power, your strength, and your ability to endure the heat of battle. That's the first function of the footwear that you're assigned. The second meaning here is that God has a specific path for you to walk. He's outfitted you with the correct footwear for that path. If God has issued you footwear to survive an Arctic condition, you can't blame him if you stubbornly insist on wearing jungle food or jungle boots, and your foot freezes off. 
That's why you need to discover and stay on the path that God has for you as an individual with the footwear that was issued to you so you will stand against anything that the enemy throws your way. Then you will know what it is like to be blessed with God's presence, His provision, and His protection. Having that belt of truth, holding the breastplate of righteousness in place, and having the correct footwear for this battle will also help develop and carry probably the most important part of the defensive side of this armor. It is so critical that the Bible says without it, it's impossible to please God. What we're talking about is faith, and it's described as our shield. Remember our original scripture said, In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Anybody here into bow hunting? <laughs> Melanie, did you get anything this year? Not yet? My friend Jason Mollis got a huge buck. Remind me to show you after church a picture of it. It's huge. I mean, he actually sent it out to Boone and Crockett to uh, be registered in there. I have never been bow hunting, but I did learn a lot about it from my grandfather. I had a recurve bow growing up. I used to shoot targets with it and all that. And one of the things that's most important in bow hunting is the tip you put on the arrow. You have to have the right tip for the right gain to maximize your chances of bringing down what you're shooting at. You see, the enemy understands this also. And he, has a, and he is an excellent and an expert archer. And he has three primary tips for his arrow. And they're called fear, doubt, and unbelief. He'll put fear in you that God is not good. The enemy would like nothing more than to get you believing that your Father God isn't good. Because from there he can plant all kinds of doubt into your heart and mind. And that arrow of doubt will make you question God's protection and his provision for your life. Or whether he's holding out on you by denying a certain um, activity to you that he calls sin. Which will cause unbelief's arrow to work. And that's going to lead you into the wrong path. And the enemy is constantly drawing back and shooting these arrows at you. Even right now, he never lets up. And that's why faith is so important. Faith is simply believing God's word is true. That's what it's all about. Believing God's word is true. Taking that question and turning it back on the devil when he said, did God really say, and we say, absolutely he did. That's what faith is. That's what this conflict is about. It's about our faith. That's why faith is our shield. It has that supernatural ability to protect our hearts and minds from the lies of the enemy. In that video we showed again this morning, one of the soldiers stands after surviving a hailstorm of arrows, and he defiantly takes his spear and, and snaps off the, the arrows in the face of the enemy, kind of saying, it <laughs> didn't hit me. That's how I want to end our service today. I want to end with God tightening our armor where it's become loose to show us where we've gotten off on our own paths, maybe reissue the correct footwear for the individual mission he's given, given us.
and to snap those arrows right off our shield so we can stand. So we can stand for the gospel. Let's all rise.